a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. Today we're going to be looking briefly at some of the important things that God teaches us in His Word about the tabernacle. We often call it the tabernacle of Moses. So we're going to be looking at that for a few minutes. But before we get into this, once again, if you're not already involved in a small group Bible study on Sunday morning, I want you to allow me the privilege of inviting you to come check out our new standing firm Bible study class at Fairview, Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater. We're meeting now in room 216 in the Family Life Center at 1015 each Sunday morning. If you'd like to have directions for how to find us and maybe a little more information about us, go to AboundingJoy.com, click on Standing Firm Bible Study Class. You can find out some more. All right, let's pick up the account of what's going on on Mount Sinai as the Lord spoke to Moses in chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. So while Moses was on Mount Sinai, God not only gave him the law, but he also gave him the pattern for the tabernacle. He gave Moses a pattern. Now we don't know exactly how he did that. Maybe it was a vision of some kind. Maybe it was just the words, and he could tell from the words what he needed to do to put it all together. That's what we have in Scripture anyway. Maybe it's some kind of physical pattern he could have. But he did give Moses a design for the tabernacle and all the furnishings that went with it. So the details of the pattern for the tabernacle and its furnishings, including the garments for the priests, are given in chapters 25 through 30. And it's what gave, God gave Moses while he's on Mount Sinai. Interestingly, in chapters 36 through 40, at the end of the book of Exodus, we're given a repetition of the things that were given in chapters 25 through 30. Only this time, the details are given as the tabernacle and its furnishings were actually being constructed and assembled. So the first time it was, this is what you're going to do, and then the second time is, this is what you're doing, you're putting it together. Now we know, of course, God only has to say something one time in His Word to make it important. Anything God says is important. But sometimes God chooses to underline things that He wants us to pay special attention to by repeating them. So maybe one of the reasons he repeats all these details in chapters 36 through 40 is he was underlining the importance of the tabernacle. He wants us to think about it. He wants us to understand it. I believe he intends for it to be a profound picture of truth, truth about him, truth about us, truth about how he works with his people, truth about Jesus, of course. So he starts here in chapter 25 with instructions to take an offering so that they'll have all the resources they need when it's time to construct it just a few days down the road. And notice what he says in verse 2. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Notice this is not a tax. This is not mandatory. 
It's voluntary. He asked them to give as their heart moved them to give. Now, in chapters 35 and 36, we read about the actual collection of this contribution. So here in chapter 25, God gives him instructions to do it. In chapters 35 and 36, Moses actually carried it out. And interestingly, in chapter 36, verses 3 through 7, we read this. Look at this. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord's commanded us to do. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. <laughs> wow. You, you don't hear that very often, do you? You guys are too generous. You're giving too much. You need to quit giving. <laughs> no, that's not very common. But it's interesting, isn't it? And, and when we think about it, it's, it's puzzling a little bit because over and over again, these people have proven themselves to be totally faithless, right? I mean, over and over, they forget God. Over and over, Moses has to correct them and remind them of the truth. Over and over, their rebellion is so bad, God eventually says, you can't go into the promised land. But here, they're giving so generously. How do we put that all together? Well, there's several possibilities. For one thing, people, you and I included, are complex. We're all complex. Sometimes we're fickle. Sometimes we change. Sometimes we're more serious. You know, we change. We're complex. For another thing, at this point, maybe they're so genuinely overwhelmed by God's goodness. Maybe they're kind of thinking straight for a few minutes anyway. He's done so much. They've been brought out of Egypt. Their enemies are dead at the Red Sea. They're being led by God. They're being fed manna. They're being supernaturally given water. And maybe they're going through a time of gratitude, just genuine gratitude that resulted in this generous giving. That's at least possible, don't you think? Now, some might argue, well, wait a minute. They're they're primarily giving things away that they had received from the Egyptians. They'd taken these things from the Egyptians when they left Egypt. So maybe it really wasn't too painful. You know, they had so much. Maybe it didn't hurt too badly to give some of it away. But you and I both know human nature, and normally, (laughs) however we obtain our possessions, once they're our possessions, it can be very hard for many of us, most of us maybe, to part with them. (laughs) And yet these people are being very generous. It might be good to also remember that even today, sometimes even lost people will give generously to what they perceive to be a noble cause of some kind. So maybe they thought, hey, the tabernacle sounds like a wonderful, tangible object that we'd be happy to have in our midst to represent our relationship to God. Whatever. I don't know what the full explanation for this is. But even though they ultimately turned out to be a very rebellious people and had been already, at this point, they're doing something very commendable. And again, remember the instructions were from every man whose heart moves him. Moses was emphasizing a principle that Paul emphasizes for us in the New Testament in his second letter to the Corinthians. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
For God loves a cheerful giver. Really important principle. He said this in Acts chapter 20, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And the principle is this, when we truly get it, when, when we really realize deep down inside what God has done for us, what he has sacrificed for us, what he has given for us and to us, when we finally understand that, being generous just seems to be the only responsible response for us to make, doesn't it? I mean, it goes along with the truth John gave us in 1 John four nineteen when he said, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. So we love to give. Why? Because he gave us so much. <laughs> On top of that, in the church, God's given some of his people the gift of giving. We learn that in the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit gives some of the people in our midst, some of our brothers and sisters, maybe you, special insight into the joy of giving. They just tend to be really tuned in to people's needs and needs in the ministry, and, and they tend to just be wired so that they want to encourage people and maybe set examples. Of course, they're setting examples for the rest of the body of Christ to also learn the joy of giving generously. They've learned the joy. The Holy Spirit's enabled them to do that, and they're wanting the rest of us to learn it too. But giving tends to go against our fallen human nature. Human nature, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, tends to be very selfish, very stingy, very greedy. <laughs> I bet you've heard people say this. I've heard it through the years so many times. No way I'm going down to that church. Those guys down there are just after my money. <laughs> That's the natural human response. I mean, it's that people are afraid if somebody's going to get their money. But God has special blessings and joy for those of us who learn from God himself that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. And of course, God set the perfect example. The first verse that most of us memorized was John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You heard him, didn't you? He gave, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the greatest gift imaginable. Paul builds on this in Romans chapter 8. He uses it for his logic of Romans 8. He said, he, talking about God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You hear what he's saying? If God's going to give us the greatest gift imaginable, our Lord Jesus, we could certainly trust him to give whatever else we might need. <laughs> And hopefully we will also learn in the process the joy of giving ourselves. Well, in verses 10 through 22, God gives Moses a pattern for the ark, the ark of the covenant. Here's an artist's idea of what it might have looked like. It was a relatively small box made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. That was to put the staves through to carry it. Originally, by the way, a cubit was the length of a man's forearm from his elbow to the tip of the middle finger. And that worked just in general for most of their measurements. When the need came for more 
precision and more accuracy, it came to be standardized to what we would say is about 18 inches. Now that varied from time to time through history and from nation to nation. In Assyria and Babylon, it was about 20 inches. In some places, it may have been as little as 16 inches. But most Bible scholars think the Bible biblical cubit was right around 18 inches. That would mean the ark was 3 feet 9 inches long, 2 feet 3 inches deep, and 2 feet 3 inches wide. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. He's talking about the tablets of the law. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with a mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So obviously this is an extremely important uh, piece of furniture for the, for the tabernacle. So the ark was overlaid with pure gold. It had a top or lid made of solid gold with angels facing each other at either end. The wings of the angels touched over the top of the lid and the lid was called the mercy seat. It represented the throne of God. And once the tabernacle was constructed, except for a 40-year period during the reign of King David, only one man on only one day of the year could come before the mercy seat. That would be the high priest on the Day of Atonement. The Jews call it Yom Kippur. And what did he do on that day? Well, you probably remember he sprinkled blood from a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat to be a covering for the people's sins for another year. And again, underneath the mercy seat was a box. The mercy seat was like the lid of the box. You remember what was in the box? Hebrews 9 says, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. As we'll learn in a few minutes, the altar of incense actually stood on the other side of the curtain from the most holy place, but it was there for the most holy place. It was associated with the most holy place. Now, it's good to think about why these particular things were placed in the ark. The tablets of the law represented the entire law of God, and the Israelites failed miserably to keep this law. In fact, one of the purposes of the law was to help Israel and all of us recognize our inability to keep it helps us recognize our sin. It helps us recognize our failures. It helps us recognize our need for mercy and forgiveness and for God's grace. What about Aaron's rod? Well, in number 16, we read about the rebellion of Korah. Happened because men were unhappy with God's chosen leaders, Moses and Aaron, of course. And God dealt with that rebellion very severely. Thousands of people ended up dying because of that rebellion. 
After that rebellion was over, God told Moses to collect the staffs from the elders of all the tribes and to write each man's name on his staff. And the tribe of Levi had the name of Aaron on it. God said he would cause the staff of the priest he had chosen to sprout. So the staffs were placed before the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, for the night. And in the morning, Aaron's staff had produced buds and blossoms and even ripe almonds. <laughs> so in Numbers chapter 17, we read this, And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. So Aaron's rod that budded was to be a reminder of the people's rebellion and grumbling against God's chosen leadership. Well, how about the pot of manna? Well, you probably remember that God gave them manna after they had demonstrated, in spite of all the things God had done for them and his miraculous de delivery from, from Egypt, they still doubted God's provision for them. They grumbled and complained and said, we were better off as slaves in Egypt than we are being free. Later on in Numbers 11, we read, after God provided the manna, they were still complaining. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing it here, but they were basically saying, We've lost our appetites for this stuff. All we ever see is this boring manna. <laughs> they just continue to complain. So inside the ark were these three reminders of God's provision. God's provision of his law, God's provision of his leadership, and God's provision of nourishment. They needed all those things. But these things were also reminders of the sins of the people, right? They didn't keep God's law. They rebelled against God's leadership. And they complained about the nourishment God provided. It was a reminder. It was a reminder of the sin of the people. And where were these reminders of their sin being kept? Well, they were covered up. Where? They were under the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. And he's communicating by that, your sins are covered for another year by the blood of the sacrifice. Until the ultimate sacrifice of God, the Son of God, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, He will come. He will take away your sins forever. All these things pointed to Jesus. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to be able to read all the descriptions of the other pieces of furnishings of the tabernacle, but I'll tell you where you can go as we go through this, where you can go in the Bible so you can read it for yourself if you'd like to do that. So in chapter 25, verses 23 through 30, God gives instructions for the table of showbread. It was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. It was three feet long, 18 inches wide, 27 inches high. Like the ark, it was carried on poles that were inserted through rings built into the table. Verse 29 says there were plates and dishes and pitchers and bowls for incense and for drink offerings. So there were drink offerings placed there with the showbread. That symbolized fellowship between the 12 tribes of Israel and the Lord. Of course, it also reminds us of the Lord's table that we sit at today when we take the Lord's Supper. But don't get confused here. It's not really the same as the Passover. The Lord's Supper replaced the Passover. Nowhere does the Lord say that this bread and the table of showbread has to be unleavened bread. Passover bread had to be unleavened. So is the Lord's Supper bread. Unleavening represents sin. This table represented fellowship. So it gives us a beautiful picture of the kind of fellowship God wants to have with his people. In chapter 25, verses 31 through 40, God gives the directions for the lampstand or the menorah. Doesn't give dimensions for the size of the menorah, interestingly. Josephus, who lived in the first century, just born a few years after Jesus' time, said it was about five feet high. 
Anyway, there were seven lamps that burned that were fueled with olive oil, and it symbolizes Jesus as the light of the world. It also symbolizes the work of the Holy Spirit. In Revelation chapter 4, John's given a vision of the throne room of God. And in verse 5, he writes this, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And that reminds us a lot of the menorah, doesn't it? Probably meant to communicate the same thing the menorah communicates. The seven torches in Revelation 4, the seven lamps in the menorah, seven is a number of completeness, fullness, perfection. And the Holy Spirit of God carries out the perfect, complete purpose of God, both all over the earth and in our lives on a personal basis. In chapter 26, we learn that the tabernacle was constructed around a frame. And we learn in verses 1 through 14, there were four layers of coverings that covered that frame. The first layer, which could be seen only from inside the tabernacle, was made of fine twined linen in blue and purple and scarlet. And there were cherubim embroidered into the covering. The cherubim were embroidered only onto this innermost covering and on the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the cherubim were embroidered there too. So the cherubim could only be seen from inside the tabernacle around the throne of God. That's the way it is in heaven. You know, we don't see them from here, but you could see them in the presence of God. This inner covering did not quite reach the ground. The second covering was made from black goat's hair. It was a little bit longer and reached all the way to the ground. So that it completely covered that linen covering, that inner linen covering. So by totally covering that inner linen covering, the idea is no one from the outside can see the glory of the presence of God. The only way into the glory of the presence of God is through the only door, the veil. And the veil, of course, represents Jesus Christ, Jesus himself. You remember what Jesus said. He said, I am the way. I am the way. I'm the veil. I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one could get to the most holy place except through the veil. The third covering was made from ram skins that had been dyed red. The fourth covering was made from what the King James calls badger skins. Actually, scholars really aren't sure what kind of animal was meant, but many today believe it probably was a kind of sea creature. We call them manatees or sea cows. Are you familiar with those? Have you seen pictures? Used to be plentiful in the Gulf of Aqaba, and they still swim there in the Red Sea. In any case, it would have been very durable. It would have had to be to withstand the sun and the rain. This meant that the part of the tabernacle that people could actually see from outside was not really very beautiful. The beauty and the value of the tabernacle was inside, near the throne of God. And obviously there's a lesson for us here. The closer we get to God, the more beauty and value we find. And thanks to Jesus, we can go right into his presence anytime we want to. And like everything else about the tabernacle, the coverings point us to Jesus. Linens often spoke of beauty and purity. It reminds us of the beauty and purity of Jesus. The goat's hair reminds us that Jesus served as a scapegoat, sacrifice for our sins. The ram skins that were dyed red remind us of the blood of the ram that served as a substitute for Isaac. Remember that? When Abraham was ready to offer Isaac and God provided the ram, it points us again to the blood of Jesus, our substitute. And the manatee skins remind us that outwardly, 
Jesus looked pretty plain, pretty ordinary. You remember that great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant prophecy? It said he's like a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Remember that? Externally, Jesus just looked like an ordinary guy. Well, as you could probably figure out, imagine that all these coverings also meant that inside the tabernacle, it was very dry and very dark. The only light was the light from the menorah, except, of course, when it was filled with the Shekinah glory of God, which he did from time to time to let them know he was there. In verses 15 through 30 of chapter 26, we get a picture of the frames that supported the coverings. The frames were made of acacia wood covered with gold. Now, there's some dispute about whether this word in the Hebrew should be translated board or frame. Some scholars think frame is a better translation, and they'll give two reasons for that. One is that acacia trees aren't very big normally, at least today. So it seems to have been unlikely that very large boards would have been able to be obtained from acacia trees. Also, the gold-covered frames, if they weren't boards but just frames, would allow the inner layer of the coverings, you know, that linen that with the embroidered cherubim, to be seen from, from, the, from the inside. If it were all made of wide boards, then the inner layer would not be seen from the inside on the sides and the walls. That probably could have still been seen at the top of the holy place in the most holy place. But I've noticed that most artists who try to give renderings of this assume that they really were boards. Of course, they're gold-plated, gold-covered boards. But if that's the case, uh, it makes sense that it would have reflected more of the light from the menorah. So that, that's, there's an argument for that, too. Anyway, these frames or boards, whichever it was, sat in sockets of silver to keep them off the desert floor, and they were supported with horizontal bars that passed through rings of golden bar holders. Uh, the bars, like the frames, were made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. In verses 31 through 37 of chapter 26, we read about the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and also the screen or the curtain that separated the entrance to the holy place from the outer court. These were two different curtains, and they were both made from linen with blue and purple and scarlet, very similar to the inner covering that was made of linen. But the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was embroidered with cherubim. The screen that separated the outer court from the holy place was not. And the screen and the veil remind us again there's only one way into the presence of God. And we know that way is Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, he tells us that the veil represented Jesus' flesh. And when his flesh was torn, you remember this, the veil to the holy place in Herod's temple was torn as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. He is the way. He is the door. And look at Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He's on the cross. And he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Jesus is the veil. And when his body was torn, so was the veil. 
to show us that now the way has been provided for us to enter the most holy place, the very presence of God, and the way is Jesus. So important. The first eight verses of chapter 27 tell us about the bronze altar. This is a place where the animals were killed and burned. It was made of acacia wood overlaid with bronze. When the altar was first constructed, its sides were most likely smooth and shiny. But when that rebellion happened, I mentioned earlier, Korah, when he rebelled against and his crew, rebelled against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, God caused the ground to open up and swallow them alive, and he sent fire to devour 250 of those rebels. And the Lord told them to take the bronze censers that had belonged to the rebels and beat them flat and then pound them into the bronze altar to be a memorial to warn others against rebellion. But now, you know what our altar is. Our altar is the cross. The altar pointed to the cross. That's where Jesus paid for our sins. That's where he offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice that all these Old Testament sacrifices pointed to on the cross at the ultimate altar. We need to be thanking him constantly for the altar. Without the cross, we'd have no hope. Chapter 27, verses 9 through 18, describe the outer court of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was cordoned off by a kind of fence, you might call it, made of white linen and bronze posts. The posts were topped off with silver. Silver was the foundation of the tabernacle, but it was also the top of the post of this outer court. And this linen fence was seven and a half feet high. We learn that in Exodus 38. And it formed a rectangle 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. The tabernacle itself inside this outer court was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. And that 45 foot length was divided into two sections, a 30 foot section, which was the holy place, and a 15-foot section, which was what was called the most holy place. So the most holy place was a 15-foot square room. Actually, it was a 15-foot cube because it was also 15 feet high. Exodus 27:16 tells us that the entrance to the outer court was a screen or a curtain that was 30 feet wide, and it was made of the same multicolored fine linen that the inner covering and the veil of the tabernacle were made of. Interestingly, even though it was 30 feet wide, in terms of square feet, the actual area, it was exactly the same size as the entrance to the holy place and the entrance to the most holy place because it was only half as high. In Exodus 27, 20, and 21, God tells us something about the oil for the menorah. In Leviticus 24, they were told to keep it burning continually. And here it seems pretty clear that the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And we know that the light of Christ cannot shine through us without our continually being filled with the Spirit, right? Which is one reason our focus is not on a one-time experience of the Holy Spirit or even on a multi-time experience of the Holy Spirit, but actually our focus is on walking in the Spirit. God makes that clear. Look at Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk. Don't just have an occasional experience with the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. A little bit later, he said, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. (laughs) Live in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Romans 8, one of the most profound chapters in all the Bible 
starts like this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk, listen, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Being filled with the Spirit is not meant to be an occasional thing that gives us an emotional high every now and then. It's not meant to be a matter of a few spectacular emotional events. Being filled with the Spirit is meant to be a way of life. It's how we walk. It's how we navigate through this life. He fills us. He leads us. He's in charge of us. He shines his light in us and through us. The Holy Spirit wants to work through us continually. <laughs> Just like those lights in the menorah had to be burning continually. Now, chapters 28 and 29 are fascinating, no doubt about it. They discuss the garments for the priest, the ephod, the breastpiece, the robe, the turban, the sashes. Discusses the consecration of the priest and the offering of burnt offerings. We just don't have time to do all of that right now and finish discussing the tabernacle. So let's skip down to chapter 30 where he describes the altar of incense. Verse 1, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. So the altar of incense was 36 inches high, 3 feet, 18 inches square, a foot and a half square. Like the ark and the other furnishings, it was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. So the altar of incense stood, remember, in the holy place. It wasn't with the ark in the most holy place. However, it was standing right next to the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And it was for the most holy place. That's why it was there. The point is, while the priest could not enter the most holy place, when they burned incense on the altar of incense, that aroma would not only fill the holy place, it would permeate into the most holy place. It's like prayers going into the presence of God. Twice a day, the priests were to burn incense on the altar of incense. And I do believe that the aroma of the incense is a God-given metaphor for the prayers and, and maybe the praise and worship of the saints. Twice in the book of Revelation, God underlines this idea. In chapter 5, we read this. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And in chapter 8, he emphasizes it again. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Exodus chapter 30 verse 10 also mentions that once a year on the Day of Atonement, which was the only time anyone could go into the most holy place, that would be the high priest, he alone, 
but he would take some of the blood of the atonement that had, he had to take it in the most holy place and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and he would apply that same blood to the horns of the altar of incense. Horns, you may remember, are a picture of power in the Bible. And the blood applied to the horns of the altar of incense pictures the fact that the power of our prayers is all based on the blood, the blood of the atonement. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We have hope, we have confidence in our prayers because of the power of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the promises of God based on the blood. In Exodus 30, 17-21, God gives us instructions for constructing the bronze laver. The laver was a basin that contained water, a pool of water that was used for ceremonial cleansing, but actually literal physical cleansing of the priest. They would get blood on themselves as they offered the sacrifices, and it stood between the bronze altar of sacrifice and the holy place. When it was actually constructed a little bit later in Exodus, chapter 38, says this, He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Isn't that interesting? I realize we might read too much into verses like this, but it's interesting that the bronze labor was made from the mirrors of women. Their mirrors in that time were made of polished bronze, and, and they would have brought these, of course, as part of the spoil they, they got in Egypt. So it's almost like he's communicating the women are giving up their ability to check on their own beauty for an instrument of ceremonial cleansing. And it kind of reminds us of our need to get our focus off ourselves and onto the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he's our source of cleansing, cleansing from sin. We're living in a day when it's very easy to focus way, way too much on ourselves. There's a tendency for all of us want to do that anyway. It's kind of our natural fallen nature, but it seems to be aggravated in our day and, and encouraged in our day. Facebook and social media have a way of appealing to our narcissistic tendencies. You know what I mean? I mean, there was a there was a time not so long ago when no one had the slightest idea what a selfie was. What a selfie? What are you talking about a selfie? But but now we take all kinds of selfies. Don't we, we all know what selfies are? We want to look good to others, and it's hard for us to forget about ourselves. You remember that song we used to sing? Forget about ourselves and concentrate on Him and just worship Him. When we worship Him, that's what we need to be doing: forgetting about ourselves and concentrating on Him. Maybe we could do with fewer mirrors ourselves. <laughs> Before we stop today, I should probably add that many people believe that one of the things God was teaching us with the entire tabernacle as a whole is what kind of beings we are. You remember there are three parts to the tabernacle. There was the outer court, and then there was a holy place, and then there's a most holy place where God dwelled. Well, in the same kind of way, we're made up of three parts. There's an outer court, which is our body. There's a holy place, which is our mind, will, and emotions. And then there's a most holy place, which is our spirit, where God dwells, the person of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's much more in these chapters, but we probably need to stop right here today. So, Father, thank you so much for giving this incredible section of Scripture to us. Thank you that we can read it anytime we want to and dig into it and study it and meditate and think and let you teach us wonderful things from your Word. But, Lord, thank you for 
giving Moses the instructions for the tabernacle and all the furnishings that went with the tabernacle. And thank you for the way you used the tabernacle and the furnishings to point us to New Testament truth, to point us to Jesus and to tell us more about ourselves, to tell us more about you and how you work and, and how our sins can be forgiven through our Lord Jesus. So Lord, help us to learn these lessons well and maybe even have an opportunity to share them with others from time to time so that others can be amazed and marvel at what an awesome God you are and how you put things together, even in the Old Testament, to point us to Jesus. We give you praise. We give you worship. We give you honor. Help us to learn how to do that well, better and better, forgetting about ourselves, concentrating on you and worshiping you well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.